sermon video now on the internet, uh, which, I mean, guys, none of you thought to tell me that I look silly like a giant behind this podium. <laughs> it's bad enough to see, like, the first video, which was me preaching, but the second one was Brett preaching, and he looks completely normal. <laughs> so I propose that we buy a large podium and once a month switch it out so he looks silly, <laughs> too. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, um, let's, let's pray together. Father, we are always ever dependent on your Spirit's movement in our hearts to see the beauty of the Scriptures. Would you open our eyes? May we gaze upon the sweet rescue of the people of God in Christ this morning. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to show and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them will He thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Okay, so if we're all completely honest with one another, I think we'd admit that the Bible is a long book. I mean, I I read a quarter of it last sermon. (laughs) Just kidding. And look, sometimes the Bible's hard to get into. But even when you're into it, a lot of times it's easy to get lost. We talk a big game about loving the Bible, but sometimes it's tough reading. Drop by Lifeway and peruse the Sunday school curricula. You're going to find a lot of the studies are written on the same passages. Some stuff in the scriptures gets a lot of attention and some stuff gets hardly any attention at all. And I think that's because some of this stuff is confusing sometimes and it's easy to get lost in the woods. 
One of the patterns, though, that you find in every or nearly every book in the Bible is a roadmap, a guide, right at the very beginning, that will teach you how to navigate the twists and the turns that would otherwise befuddle. This roadmap works as a sort of encouragement to readers in the mud. When you're knee-deep in genealogies or 92 words into one of Paul's sentences, come on, Paul, break it up. Now, these roadmaps don't always look the same. Sometimes you'll find them in the first few sentences of the book, and other times you'll have to look further. Sometimes they're clear, highlighted, and underlined, grabbing your attention. And sometimes they're subtle, sitting in the corner of the room, watching and waiting for you to ask them questions. The reason I bring this up is because the roadmap to the book of Samuel is, I think, one of the most beautiful in the Scriptures. And I want to show you why. Read with me from the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. Hold up your Bible when you get there. Oh, wow, guys. You were already there, to be honest. I'll read. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept. And would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate 
and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him. So that he may appear before the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And then she had weaned him. She took him with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he, is, as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. It's beautiful. Now, I think it's worth mentioning right here at the beginning that this is not a unique moment in the history of Israel. I mean, it's not radically unexpected, right? The way God relates to Hannah isn't new. God gives to those who cry out. He gives children to the barren. I mean, right at the beginning of the story of God's people, we find Sarah, who was, by the way, way, way too old to be having a baby. And it's not just Sarah... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all have barren wives, and the Lord compassionately moves to give each one of them children. So we shouldn't be surprised by this story. But Hannah's story, right here at this moment, has, I think, a powerful significance. This is a moment of what I think is unprecedented hope for the people of Israel. And let's talk about why before we get into and explore the story itself. A few weeks ago, we stepped back and we surveyed the history of God's people. A slave nation delivered from captivity. And as we read, we imagined what it must have been like to live every moment of every day a slave until in a sweeping moment of pure hope and overwhelming miraculous joy, you're free. The armies of Pharaoh were swept away. And replaced with the sweet washing rhythm of freedom. I can't get that image out of my head, by the way. The image of armies screaming and the Lord moves. And the only thing you can hear is. What what must have that been like? God worked miracles to break the chains of his people. And he escorted them into a new land. But the people of Israel quickly forgot about the God who rescued them. They turned away in a moment at the slightest sign of trouble. They turned away to the gods of Canaan again and again and again. We read a song together last time. A song written by God himself. You're going to leave me, he sings. 
You're going to turn away and chase after sex and drink. You're going to oppress the poor among you and feast without restraint, bowing to the idols of your neighbors. And on that day, I will turn my face away from you and I will set myself against you. And you'll be defeated in battle and you'll be made slaves and you will lose everything. And when you're broken with absolutely nothing left, on that day you'll cry out and I'll answer. See, the people of Israel turned away from the God who rescued and who gave life and who preserved and who sustained. They turned away and they lost everything. They were beaten and they were mocked and they were enslaved. And if you didn't know any better, you'd gaze upon the ruined, broken people of Israel and believe them to be hopeless. And yet, in their darkest hour, we turn the page to find a story of a barren woman, hopeless among her people, mocked by her peers. See, Hannah is a microcosm of the people of Israel. Her barrenness is a picture of their barrenness. Her tears are a picture of the tears of the people of God. And just like them, just like Israel, she has no hope without God. And when she cries out, God hears And when she prays, God rescues. That's why this story is so powerful. That's why after the dark, painful memories of the judges, this moment is a bright ray of sunshine piercing through the darkness after a terrible storm. And the message of this story couldn't be clearer. Come to me, barren Israel. Come to me, mocked and broken Israel. Cry out to me and I will give you rest. Devote yourself to me and you will be blessed and you will be restored. So what I want to do now is I want to look briefly at a few significant moments in this story which I think is full of hope. And then I want to step back from this story and I want to with you trace the shadow of this story to its true ultimate meaning. So take a look for a moment back at Samuel. Okay, so the first thing I think is worth noting is that Hannah has a comforter in her husband. And I think that message is clearly preserved in this story to teach the nation of Israel that her husband, the God of Israel, is ready to comfort her in affliction. Take a look quickly at the second paragraph. On that day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept. And would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? 
Now, I've heard guys preach on this passage before, and at least one notable preacher has reflected on that statement and said, look, guys, this is not how you should comfort your wife. And that's, that's funny, right? Am I not better than those things? That's funny, but I don't, and I, and I think it's probably true, but I don't think that this passage is written for that purpose. This passage isn't written written to teach men how to comfort their wives. This passage is written to teach Israel about the true source of comfort, the true source of joy in the midst of sorrow and affliction. This passage is a message to barren Israel from the God who gives all things. So think about that message for a moment. Am I not more to you than everything you wish you had at this moment? Yes, it's painful to lose your home, your land, and your freedom. But am I not more than those things? Can I not give you a home, an everlasting land, never failing freedom? And that's a powerful message of hope. I mean, that's the gospel. Many of us bow our knees and ask God for relief or for help through suffering or for restored health. And God is there saying to His people, am I not more than relief from a painful season? Am I not more than temporary comfort from suffering? Am I not more than a few more years in a broken body? He is more. Yes, He sometimes rescues His people from pain and from suffering and from illness. But is he not more than help? That's why we don't despair when we pray to God and ask him to take away cancer and he chooses not to. Is he not more than help? And though we're sad to see our brother or sister sleep, we know at that moment they have something more, something better than health. And that's powerful. Okay, so the the second thing that I think is worth noting is that the true faith in this passage is demonstrated by the barren woman and not by the priest. Look back at the story for a minute. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. We're going to start seeing a theme develop here in the story of Samuel. This is a major pillar in the story of the rise of David. I want you to take note of this because this is important. God chooses not to move through the exalted, 
through the social ranks, through the impressive and the powerful people among the nation of Israel. That is not how he chooses to rescue his people. Remember, instead of a tall, handsome warrior bearing sword and shield, God rescues his people with the stones of a shepherd boy. Right? And if anyone were to, in this story were to display remarkable faith, wouldn't you expect it to be God's priest? Right? You'd expect prophetic visions and words of wisdom to come from the mouth of Eli. Now, this, this guy sleeps before the ark of God. But this priest is blind in more ways than one. If you place this passage in context, you'll, you'll find that this is a moment wherein few are faithful. Few have set their faith in the God of Israel. I mean, the very last words of the book of Judges, which precedes this story in the Hebrew Bible, reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we have this moment in the history of Israel where the tabernacle must have been a ghost town. Few have remained faithful. Yet this woman prays with fervor. So shouldn't a priest of God see the faithful few from a mile away? If the dust is gathering in the holy places, shouldn't the shepherd be able to identify when faithful ones cry out to God? I mean, this is Eli. This is the judge of Israel, the chosen redeemer who represents the people. And yet in this moment, there's not a hint of the presence of God's spirit and God's priest. Eli is godless, functionally godless in this story. But look over there, weeping in the dirt. Can't, can't you see the beautiful irony in this moment? Where is God right now? That's where God is, listening to the prayers of a barren woman. I want you to see this because you're going to start read story, you're going to start to read story after story of God moving through the weak and the broken and the helpless. You're going to start seeing this pattern unfold over and over again in the story of Samuel, and that's on purpose. Because the kingdom of God is upside down. The first is last and the last is first. He doesn't send a powerful king and vast armies to sack the Romans and conquer the world. He sends a baby in a barn who will not carry a sword of fire, but who will carry the sins of the world to the cross. That's what the kingdom of God is like. See, the upside down vision of Samuel will teach you to think with an upside-down vision of the kingdom of God. And that's on purpose. Look, before you took your first steps, you began to wear a broken worldview, a rebel worldview. You were born into the kingdom of Satan. And every minute we spin in it is a minute bolstering the paradigm of the wicked. The way you see the world is backwards. It's off. It's built into your broken flesh and blood to straighten your tie when the millionaire walks into the conference room. 
It's built in your blood to be especially complimentary when you happen upon the VP of operations at Target. It's why you befriend pretty people. It's also why you hurry your pace when you notice a beggar on the corner. It's why we can, for years, ignore reports of civilian casualties in Syria, but we just can't stop talking about Donald Trump's last tweet. It's built into you. And you can't rightly follow Christ when you think about the world that way. Your vision has been blurry for far too long. And it's time to put on the lenses of the kingdom. Hannah is here to give you those lenses. And Samuel and David. These stories are the prescription you need to correct your vision. Okay, one more thing, and then we're going to trace the shadow. Okay, so remember what I said before about the roadmap? Well, in Samuel, I think the roadmap is Hannah's song. At this moment, which think for a moment about this moment. This woman has been pleading with God for years for a baby boy. And what faithfulness on display that she takes that baby boy and she hands that baby boy over. He's the Lord's. He's not mine. As long as he lives, he's going to serve the Lord. Take him. And if that's not enough, she sings a praise song. Remember Abraham? He was 100 years old, something like that. Carry the wood, boy. Let's go up the mountain. Because God told him to sacrifice his firstborn. That kind of faith is miraculous. And Hannah adds upon that type of faith, handing over that little boy, she adds this song of praise. And man, that song's going to teach you how to read the whole book. So read it with me. It's in 1 Samuel 2. My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren, the barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shell and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
For the pillars of the, Lord, of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Okay, so just a few things to point out. One, God will rescue his people. Two, God humiliates the proud. Three, God exalts the humble. And four, a king is coming. God will rescue his people. God humiliates the proud. God exalts the humble. A king is coming. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those words should ring in your ears. Because that's what this song is about. And that's what Samuel is about. This song is so simple, really, because it finds a half dozen ways to say the same thing. When God intervenes, the mighty and the weak, the mighty and the strong and the arrogant and the wicked are brought low. They are humiliated. They are defeated. And when God intervenes, the hungry and the broken and the poor and the outcast is lifted up in their distress. He is taken from the dust and washed and given new robes and made to sit in the seat of princes. In God's kingdom, the last are first and the first are last. But that's not the end of the song. Read the last lines one one more time. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. So what you need to know is how out of context these words are. He will give strength to his king. What king? What king? There there was no king. There wasn't even a plan to have a king. This is a nation of judges. And before that, it was no nation. Moses and Joshua and a series of men who represented the people. Vehicles used to rescue and guide the people, but never a king. There are hints, sure. Like brief moments in the scriptures, symbols and shadows like the scepter in Moses' song. But this was no kingdom. Not yet. This was a loose association of tribes. And certainly a king wasn't expected. So why? Right here at the end of Hannah's song, why prophesy about a king? I want to talk to you for a moment about shadows. So look, when it's bright outside, you've always got one, right? I mean, it's there and it's teaching anybody who's paying attention that you're nearby. And it's like you in some ways, right? But it, it's not like you in other ways. I mean, some aspects are you, of you are communicated by your shadow, but kind of in a distorted way, all stretched out, manipulated. Now, if you misunderstand 
the nature of shadows, you might start to draw conclusions that are wacko. I mean, if I'm standing in the sun around 1.30, you might look at my shadow and believe me to be three feet tall. Or if it's evening, you might think I'm a giant. But I'm not. I've been the same size all day. You've just misunderstood how shadows work. The authors of the New Testament look back on the story of Samuel and call it a shadow. Because at every point in the developing story of Samuel, if you're paying attention, you can trace the distant shadow of the king himself. The rise of David is like the rise of Jesus, but in a distorted way. Some aspects, if you're paying attention, will teach you in detail about the king that's coming to rescue God's people and make all things new. And right here, at this moment, we've caught our first glimpse of the shadow. Right here, hiding in plain sight. A wink. A secret handshake. All of a sudden, you realize there's something more going on than a barren woman celebrating over a child. That word, that very last word, the Lord will exalt the horn of His anointed. Do you know what that word is in the Hebrew? That word which we translate anointed? Messiah. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and He will exalt the horns of the Messiah. I'm totally butchering the pronunciation, but only because we do it every day when we're talking about Jesus. As you begin to read this song, you might believe that it's a reflection on on how the Lord has worked. And maybe even an expression of hope in how the Lord will work. Hannah praises God because He's done great things, and she praises God because He will do great things. And until this last stanza, you don't need to go any further. But those last two lines, man, they change everything. This song is a telescope. It is a treasure map to the king. And when you read the word king, and when you read the word Messiah, all of a sudden you know without a doubt that Hannah has stopped reflecting on the here and now and has started to prophesy about the coming kingdom. So, yes, this story will teach us how to read the story of Samuel, which is itself a shadow. And this song will prepare you for the rise of David, the humble shepherd king. But ultimately, this song is going to teach us how to pierce the shadow and behold the anointed king of Israel. So I want to take Hannah's cue, and I want to follow the shadow to the story of the king. Guys, this is by far my favorite part. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it that the Scriptures work this way. I love it. Because when Hannah sings about a king, she's winking. My kids have been trying to wink lately. It's awesome. Winking. She's winking at you. Messiah. You read. You're reading that story. You see Messiah. You go, what? Flip the pages. 
trace the shadow. You pay attention to what the text is doing right now and you'll marvel at the beauty of the Scriptures and the greatness of the God who wrote them. Open to Luke 1.5. See, this wasn't in the bulletin, so you couldn't pre-prepare. This is the real test of the Bible flippers. I cheated. It's printed here. Luke 1.5. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John." And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth before, because he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready For the Lord, a people prepared. The prophet Samuel is in many ways a shadow of John the Baptist. Now we'll get into this further in a few months, but the story of the birth of John the Baptist has uncanny similarities to the birth of Samuel. It's almost like the gospel is casting a shadow on the history of Israel. In the shadow, a barren woman yearns for a child. But in the shadow caster, the pleas for mercy aren't blessed by a priest of God. They are coming from a priest of God. In the shadow, God grants this request as a part of His plan to rescue His people. But in the shadow caster, He sends an angel as a messenger to preach good news of the final rescue. Of the people of God. In the shadow, the expected child will be set apart for the work of God. But in the shadow caster, the expected child will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. In the shadow, the miracle child will make way for a king. In the shadow caster, the miracle child will make way for the king of kings. And just like Hannah prophesied about a coming king, Zechariah prophesies about the king of kings. Read with me once more Luke 1.67. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's it. That's where it's all pointing. Everything is building. Everything. Baron Hannah's prayer, the blessing of Eli, the birth of Samuel, the rise of David, the restoration of the nation of Israel, the priesthood, the prayers of Baron Elizabeth and desperate Zechariah, the angel's proclamation, the spirit-filled child leaping in his mother's womb, the victory songs of a proud father. Absolutely every moment in the history of the people of Israel is orchestrated to culminate in this one moment you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace rescue is coming Salvation in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God. The sun is rising. Finally. Day has come. By the mercy of God, the sun is rising and will give light to those who sit in the shadow of death. That's me. That's you. He will guide us into the way of peace. Jesus. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the Messiah of Hannah's song, the King of Israel, the King of creation. Jesus is coming to rescue His people, to stretch out a hand to the weak and the broken, to the sinners and the hopeless. That's me and that's you. Jesus is coming to dust off the homeless and the needy and the sick and to clothe them in new robes and to sit with them in the seat of honor. And He will show us the way of peace. I'm done. One last question. If the Lord saw fit to orchestrate an entire nation's history to culminate in the one moment where Jesus comes to rescue His people, is it not right for you to orchestrate your week? Orchestrate your morning? Orchestrate your conversations to lead to that one culminating moment where you can talk about Jesus? Is it not right to orchestrate everything that happens all day long as to, 
as much as you can to orchestrate all that is happening to you and to the people around you to try and devote time and energy to focus on this one culminating point. God built the history of Israel. He crafted the message to Israel to culminate on Jesus. And we, we have the privilege of approaching Jesus and pleading with Him. We have the privilege of approaching Jesus and talking to Him. Run to Jesus. He's the point. Let's pray.